wasn't just TikTok that they kicked out. They kicked out things like Clash of Kings and Baidu apps and WeChats. And there's a, a bunch of applications that they listed as national security sort of uh, weaknesses. And it was it's fascinating because they're not completely wrong. And if you look at the other story that came out this week on TikTok itself, it was that TikTok was collecting an absurd amount of data as it was running on users' machines. So it was collecting all of the clipboard contents and every other app on the machine and just sort of very much intrusively monitoring what was happening and sending it back to China. So that kind of surveillance is, it's almost a theme this week in terms of what Chinese applications do. And it's probably what got all of these other applications on the list. The Indians are not a second layer power when it comes to cyber, they know what's going on. And so when they knock out something like WeChat, it means they, they understand the true risks of these applications. Welcome to episode 323 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're expressing views that would shock uh, our clients, our institutions, our families, and our pets, uh, uh, and none of them are responsible for what we say here. Uh, uh, joining me in the news roundup, uh, Nick Weaver, uh, a longtime uh, uh, panel member for our news roundup, who was at uh, uh, UC Berkeley teaching computer science. Uh, Mark McCarthy, who's a senior fellow with Georgetown Law School uh, and Business School and the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, new um, this week, Dave Itell, who's the founder of the Itell Foundation, uh, uh, created presumably after he sold one of his startups uh, and who is uh, an information security specialist and serial entrepreneur. Dave, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, host and chief provocateur in today's program. Uh, so let's jump in. Last week, we said that the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee had crossed a Rubicon by a uh, uh, introducing the lawful assistance to uh, uh, to LEED, uh, uh, Lawful Access to Encrypted Devices uh, Act, uh, uh, this week... The uh, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, saw the Rubicon and ran as far as they could in the opposite direction. Mark, uh, uh, what did they do with the Earn It Act that uh, uh, has to do with encryption? Well, the, the first thing that they did was to um, uh, was to unanimously pass an amended version of the bill, uh, and that it would it would establish a commission to recommend best practices for online companies to get them to take action against child sexual abuse material. But, but um, the, the commission could very well say, if you, if you have end-to-end -end encryption, then how can you take action against child sexual abuse material? So it, it seems to suggest that uh, the, the companies can't simultaneously do things to take care of child sexual abuse material and also have end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, it amended Section 230 uh, to to uh, create some liability in that circumstance, and and it's raised the usual issues about free speech. Um, but uh, despite the forward movement through the Judiciary Committee, I I wouldn't bet on this or anything like it becoming law this year. Um, 
some some quick background distributing child sexual abuse material it's already a federal crime uh, and and section 230 would allow criminal prosecution for violations of that law but it section 230 does limit online company liability for sexual abuse material and and the um, uh, the Earned Act would, would, as introduced, would, would change this. Um, I don't know. As, as passed by the committee, this is why I think that they, they took a, one look at the Rubicon and head in the other direction. The argument about Earn It was always, um, one, if you, create, if you allow people to create best practices, uh, especially if the attorney general can modify those best practices, he's going to say it's best practices not to do end-to-end -end encryption because that does protect child uh, sexual abuse material. Um, and uh, so we, uh, you know, the uh, all the right-thinking uh, uh, NGOs said, oh, that's shocking. You can't do that. Um, and so what the um, uh, manager's amendment to this bill did is they said, we're still going to have the best practices uh, provision, but it's not going to be particularly binding. They can They can recommend best practices, but it won't really be tied directly to how you stay out of liability for reckless endangerment uh, or uh, a reckless uh, violation of the child sexual abuse uh, rules. So they defanged that to a degree. Most important, though, um, Senator Leahy had an amendment that essentially immunizes you if you ad adopt end-to-end -end encryption. In fact, I think the immunity may be, might even be wider than the Section 230 uh, uh, immunity. Um, a, and so um, with that in the bill, of course it passed unanimously because it, it does almost nothing that is controversial except allow for victims of uh, child pornography to sue people who distributed it uh, uh, if they did so recklessly, which it's kind of hard to find somebody who's against that. Well, that's well, how I how I yeah, they changed the recklessly standard back to knowing, which is what it is under the federal law right now. But the key problem with the manager's amendment is that it allows state criminal prosecution for the advertisement, promotion, presentation, distribution, or solicitation of child sexual abuse material. Uh, and it doesn't say that those state laws have to match the existing federal law. So um, it, so they could choose recklessly if they if They, they could to. choose recklessly, they could use negligence, they could even use state, uh, strict liability. And if you're know, not for a criminal statute, come on. And, and if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're paranoid about encryption, the law would allow the states, with a nudge from Bill Barr, to pass a law making the use of encryption a violation of the state statute against child sexual abuse material. So, so the, the companies are... Uh, I'm sorry, I think, I think the 230 uh, immunity would uh, preempt that. Uh, this sounds like, you know, somebody who just no, doesn't it, want it, anything with Ernest's title it, to pass and they're it, thinking of uh, uh, lame reasons to, be, uh, to oppose it. Stuart, it, it, it changes the, the liability under 230 and makes the... If a state passes a law that has to do with child sexual abuse material, Section 230 would no longer uh, protect the companies against liability under that new law. Well, now, they couldn't do anything about encryption because there is a there's an immunity for the use of end-to-end -end encryption. Yeah, but the the one of the key things that's making it unlikely that it'll move forward is that some of the Republican senators are not happy with what's going on. Um, so Mike Lee from Utah, he said, "I'm in favor of the bill, but 
But this, this uh, language that allows the states to define standards of liability, we can't protect people around the country based on a patchwork quilt of state laws. He seems to be worried about states not doing enough or, or, uh, or doing, doing something that's too weak. So I don't think the Senate is going to be in any hurry to act on this. I mean, uh, no I think when it comes out of the committee 22 to nothing, it's kind of hard to see it not passing. If, if you've got a, a senator who says, before this goes to the floor, I want to renegotiate these things, and it's Mike Lee from Utah, that's going to put a break on it. So I, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I, if I were Mike Lee, I would not want to stand up and say, I, there's sometimes when maybe child sexual abuse material shouldn't really be uh, illegal. I, I'm just, I, that's, that, that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, I, that's my bet. I remember the, the FOSTA, after all the fuss amongst the uh, uh, bien pensant uh, uh, internet uh, uh, community, passed 98 to nothing. I, I, I suspect we're going to see the same thing with earn it i wouldn't put money on it that's my suggestion so i will okay 10 bucks says it passes you got, you by, got the, it. Uh, yeah. by, uh, by the end of the year okay hold you me to it. it i'm on to okay all right uh so speaking of crypto regulation, uh, uh, one of the arguments is if you try to regulate encryption uh, uh, and you don't let uh, Apple and Facebook provide really good encryption. The criminals will just go out and buy their own. They'll roll their own. Um, and the response has always been, yeah, but they'll make mistakes and we'll be able to bust them. Uh, this latest uh, EncroChat uh, uh, case suggests that that's not completely crazy as an argument, right, Nick? Well, this is the first time they've actually succeeded in hacking one of these things. So in the black market world, there's these companies that sell secure funds. And they nudge, nudge, wink, wink for legit purposes. No, it's for drug dealing. Um, and you can tell because they do features like take the handset, modify it to remove the GPS and camera, um, dual install operating system so that it can look like a normal Android, include a wipe routine so you put in the pin code, different pin code, it wipes everything automatically. Um, and they sell it like drug deals. So if you want one of these, you pay cash, you gotta know a guy who knows a guy and you meet in the back alley and buy one of these cell phones. And this area has actually a fair bit of competition. There's multiple vendors. And normally what happens is the vendors get arrested directly. So the US, we arrested some guy who was running one of these and we basically gave them the choice of uh, either compromise the devices that you're selling or go to jail. And he decided to go to jail because it was probably a lot safer. Yep. This is a great story out of Europe. Apparently, the French and Dutch authorities, um, as far as I can tell, France was the lead, uh, had one of these EncroChat in Europe that was popular. And they hacked the endpoints. So they came up with a way to hack the phones themselves. They, uh, starting around uh, April 1st, I believe, it was somewhat noticed because they did do an overt change of removing the wipe ability 
basically right. making it buggy so that you couldn't actually have the distress wipe. And also, they were just being really successful that all of a sudden the European police were just on a tear. And the people behind the uh, phones realized something was wrong. They got into basically counter hack or counter attack or counter hack trying to figure out what was going on. And eventually nope, there's just, an APT in my network. Oh, oops, there's an APT in the network. And basically a few days ago, about a week or week or two ago, they basically said, uh, we're totally screwed. Take your phone and shred it. And then the French and Dutch came out and go, hey, we're all in it. Yeah, did a sack um, dance on them. I, it was pretty impressive. I my hat is off to the French for having done this. It's uh, it's it's what I, I you know, and in their best moments, this is what they do. Uh, but it sounds like you're you're saying this was really an active hack only from April to mid June. So they must have had an ability to recover chats that had been stored and pulled them all down as well. Yes, because it was a hack on the phones themselves. So yeah. you get the phone, you get all the saved messages on the phone. It's very impressive. I, 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 and they're going to be uh, charging a lot of people. And I, I assume they'll find a way to, char to charge EncroChat as well. Uh, uh, even though they're, they're gone, there was management, and those guys were presumably complicit, uh, especially after they'd spent all their time trying to keep government hackers out of their system. Yes. The other thing is, is the level of objection civil libertarians on Twitter is remarkably low. Um, yes. But I'd love the FBI to do this too, even though the uh, stack of paperwork needed for the search warrant would be about uh, 500 pages. Well, and I think there are some, some issues with this because they basically hacked everybody. Even, you know, what we're going to hear about, I'm sure from the civil liberties uh, uh, groups is there was one uh, human rights NGO that uh, uh, got given one of these phones and was using it. And now their uh, uh, communications have been compromised. Yeah. And um, I think that that is collateral damage because we, the FBI did that with the freedom hosting case. There was a few non-child pornography sites hosted on freedom hosting and the FBI just hacked them all. Yeah, and then they just, they, they said, okay, just like when you do a wiretap uh, and you're tapping the, uh, uh, the mafia boss and his daughter gets on and starts gossiping with her friend from junior high, uh, you say, okay, I know what this is all about. I'm going to turn it off. Uh, and you just say, yes, I listened to her uh, uh, starting to talk about uh, her boyfriend and uh, that's an invasion of her privacy, but it's the only way we can make wiretaps work. So uh, the courts have said, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, well, while we're on device hacking, uh, let's talk TikTok. Uh, uh, Dave, uh, India banned TikTok, and uh, uh, at least uh, one story came out suggesting that uh, uh, there was a very good reason to ban it other than the fact that you're actually fighting hand-to-hand -hand with the Chinese on your border. I, I think the, uh, the geopolitical implications of apps where you have to do a lot of dancing are just hilarious. But in this case, 
it's there's a bunch worth mentioning. One thing is India is TikTok's second largest market. This is a place where TikTok said they were spending a billion dollars. So it's not as if uh, the owners of TikTok can realistically ignore this kind of pushback. And it so wasn't they, just they're, they're just down though, right? They're down in India, uh, and yeah. uh, you know the Chinese government is saying, "But gee, we think that might be a WTO violation. We sure hope you uh, uh, correct it soon." Yes, and and it's funny because when you like listen to people in India talk about this, they really come at it from a position where they believe India is too weak to kick TikTok out of their country, which I found really weird from a, a national security standpoint, but it wasn't just TikTok that they kicked out. They kicked out things like Clash of Kings and Baidu apps and WeChats. And there's a, a bunch of applications that they listed as national security sort of uh, weaknesses. And it was it's fascinating because they're not completely wrong. And if you look at the other story that came out this week on TikTok itself, it was that TikTok was collecting an absurd amount of data as it was running on users' machines. So it was collecting all of the clipboard contents and every other app on the machine and just sort of very much intrusively monitoring what was happening and sending it back to China. So that kind of surveillance is, it's almost a theme this week in terms of what Chinese applications do. And it's probably what got all of these other applications on the list. The Indians are not a second layer power when it comes to cyber. They know what's going on. And so when they knock out something like WeChat, it means they, they understand the true risks of these applications. And I don't know if we're going to see these applications ever re-enabled in India. A lot of these applications have Indian competitors that are now absorbing all these users as fast as they can. So that yeah, that's what I would have expected. I mean, if, if you're off TikTok for three weeks, you might as well, it, 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 it's dead to you. Yeah, it's dead. And especially if there's an, there's a competitor in country that's just as good and, and is advertising. And the damage I bet, is I bet not- Is it Facebook that just uh, ended uh, their uh, uh, TikTok competitor? Uh, one of the big uh, US social platforms got out of the business just about two days before the, uh, the ban took effect. I think another one just added the same features though. So, I mean, the features are not that hard to sort of re-implement and then market to the teams I mean, if you look at Instagram, the only thing I see on Instagram is TikTok ads, which yeah. I think is very annoying, but it is what it is. And another really interesting aspect of the story came out when someone was talking about it, where they pointed out that Rovio used to use an advertising platform called React. And of course, right. at the time, Rovio owned the most popular game of all time on mobile platforms, Angry Birds, which I myself was very addicted to. And uh, React was sending data back unencrypted to its main advertising servers. And what was alleged, I obviously don't have any firm data on this, was that the reason it was unencrypted was the NSA was actually paying Rovio for the privilege of leaving it unencrypted and then was using that data to correlate devices to users, which is an extremely valuable thing to do. Uh, so it's to me, the funny thing is that like these little apps that in some cases do nothing but drain your battery and your serotonin levels are <laughs> now strategically important because the value of that vast 
user-based data is so important. You get so much out of it. These are national security concerns for places like India and including for places like us. And I think yeah, we're so going to find that more and more. Don't, don't you think that the reason for that is that uh, um, in advertising, Silicon Valley uh, was free to just go all out, collect anything, uh, figure out a way to use it, uh, whereas the national security enterprise has never felt with perhaps a few exceptions right around 9-11, uh, free to, uh, to say, what does the technology allow us to do? Let's try that. Uh, but in advertising, that's kind of how you make your, uh, your first billion. Uh, and so they have achieved the, the, the 1984 brave new world that we uh, uh, most feared uh, kind of under the radar because it was just advertising. I agree. And, and I also think the, the weird other side of that story has always been gaming. And so if you look at what gaming gets you, you will then have to start looking at who owns all the gaming companies. And it's, it's Tencent. And mm -hmm. they have an almost complete monopoly on gaming, which is fascinating if you look at the long-term strategic implications of where all of your Overwatch and you know Valorant data is going to go. And it's going to be on a Baidu or Alibaba server somewhere. So wow. these are these are actually strategically scary things that we honestly probably should be paying more attention to. Yes, but you know, like uh, 1984 is coming for us here in a different <laughs> way from a different direction. That uh, uh, Mark. Uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley has never been more enthusiastic about uh, uh, looking for hate speech and hated speakers and uh, uh, deplatforming them, and there was a lot of that this uh, this week. Yeah, uh, you, you saw some further closing down of the uh, internet of the wild, wild west. Uh, Twitch suspended uh, Trump's channel for posting videos that violated its rules. And uh, Reddit banned uh, their the Donald subreddit for the same reason, and and Facebook removed 220 accounts affiliated with the Bugaloo uh, movement. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on in that area. But but a new a new thing developed uh, this week that's worth focusing on, and that Gab reported that its credit card processor stopped doing business with them, suggesting that it's not just social media who are involved in this content moderation stuff. And that, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought this was interesting. Now, Gab was a, it is, uh, everybody says, well, if you don't like Twitter's policies, go start your own. And so this guy did. He started Gab, this guy Torba, uh, meant to be a Twitter competitor in which he promised not to do anything like the level of uh, censorship that Twitter does. Um, and uh, boy, did that end badly for him. Yeah, and and it's it's a it's a message that the credit card companies, you know, can exercise the same discretion as social media companies. They they have the ability to choose their own customers just as social media companies do. And I mean, it's worth it's worth remembering that back in 2010, when the WikiLeaks disclosures hit, uh, there were all these calls from elected officials to payment processes to web hosting services. Uh, to cut their ties with uh, with the company, with WikiLeaks. And one after another, they all did. Um, and, and you're getting the same sort of thing now from Democratic senators and congressmen. You know, the, the, this this kind of jawboning by elected officials is, is part of the process.
I think it's the kind of thing where you'll see more of it, and it may be the kind of thing is part of how our democratic system works. So, um, well, maybe, or at least how how elites enforce uh, their uh, their values. Uh, uh, what what Torvo would say, I'm sure, if he were on this, is that uh, um, he's he's not uh, an enthusiast for hate speech, but he's not about to censor people. And that because he refused to go along with the Silicon Valley consensus uh, uh, that everything now from the left of Donald Trump over to the right uh, is hate speech, uh, um, he was tagged as a hate speaker himself. Uh, his um, uh, social media was shut down. And then he was told, you you and your wife will never be able to be merchants again for Visa because uh, what you did was so shocking. Now, exactly what he was did that was shocking is unclear, but this is kind of guilt by association. He had people on his center, on his service that uh, have been labeled hate speakers, and therefore he became labeled as responsible for the hate speakers, and his wife, you know, she lives with him, so she's got to go down too. Yeah, but, you know, credit card companies have the right to choose who they do business with, and even if you don't like their call, it's not your call, it, it's theirs. American Express has never taken uh, pornography merchants. Even though they're perfectly legal merchants, they just don't want it to be associated with their brand. And the credit card processors are probably making the same judgment about about Gab. Now, now whether, whether you should cut off political candidates, that's a different question. And I, I do think there's a, you know, when, when Twitch, you know, cut off Trump, they might've been going a step too far in, in that area. Well, especially because what they did was they they said you rebroadcast a speech he gave in 2016. This is the speech that is always labeled by the media as him saying that Mexicans are rapists. Uh, and uh, you can come to that interpretation, but I think a, a more charitable and accurate interpretation is he said some of the people coming across the border are very nice people and some of them are rapists and criminals, uh, which is not inaccurate yeah. uh, uh, yeah. but uh, they, because they of the way it's been summarized it, uh, they said well that's hate speech you're coming down uh, just because you said it four years ago I think the difference is it's four years later and there's going to be a campaign and uh, everybody in Silicon Valley is saying what can we do to make sure Donald Trump can't possibly win yeah well I think the there's a legitimate fear that uh, the same fear that prompted Congress to establish rules about political advertising is the fear that private parties might have some significant control over public discourse and, and use that to put a thumb on the election scales. Now, Twitch is by no means a dominant platform, but so maybe they should get a pass. But there are well, they are they are in, in in gaming. I think they are. But yeah, but not in the one that they they took action on. And and uh, that's true. Like, fair Facebook, enough. Facebook and and, and YouTube might reasonably be subject to these uh, candidate access requirements and no censorship rules because you know they're 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 in a, a more powerful position but it, it'll take a, an action by congress to establish such a, a policy and there's no sign that congress is going to take any step in in that direction i do think one thing has changed is that trump is now a lot more out and proud about frankly his racism today he was going that uh NASCAR uh, was being bad for banning the flag of treason. He's just gone 
basically over the edge at this point. And yeah, he's a he's a seventy year old man for for sixty of the seventy years that he was alive. Uh, the stars and bars was not a racist symbol. Uh, it's become a racist. <laughs> I'm sorry. The stars and bars is all about racism. I, I, I beg to differ. I, I know a lot of people who think that it's, uh, or used to think and have been educated or uh, 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 pressured into different, believing differently. But uh, uh, it used to be, I'm a rebel. I don't conform. I, uh, I believe in lost causes. There was a whole, you know, it, it, just, just watch uh, Gone with the Wind. There's a whole uh, mythology around uh, the the uh, the Civil War and the Lost Cause and all of that, and there are people who bought into that, and you can you can you can sneer at them if you like, but uh, it, uh, they had a, leg a a genuine belief that that was what the war was about. I mean, they did have a genuine belief that that's what the war was about, but I think um, the the current theme among social media is that that belief was essentially created by the Ku Klux Klan. And it's historically accurate. So the problem with some of this stuff is that when you take Donald Trump's account and simply mirror it as another user, you get auto banned for racism because you're posting things that say white power. And, yep. and so he's actually been getting special permission in a sense, he's, he's specially immunized. And some of the other prominent people on the platforms have been specially immunized and, and, and as, I, as they kind of should you know if you think he's a racist then you want to have the evidence handy uh, uh, and the idea that uh, somebody in Silicon Valley says no you can't see that uh, is uh, uh, I think interfering in a political debate that is central to our uh, uh, self-government. So I, 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 right I, I see the, the justification for that. And I'd say that same thing if if, uh, if he were a communist. Uh, uh, we, we need to know what he's saying. So I, I, I think Facebook got it right when they created an exemption for newsworthiness uh, on the part of political candidates. It, it may not be popular these days in the rest of Silicon Valley or on Capitol Hill, but I think that kind of Bring the message to the to the people is an important one, even if you hate the message and you think it really is racist, which I, I happen to agree with everybody else. I think Trump is being racist in this area, but is uh, a political candidate. And and that's the kind of thing I think you have to you have to take into account when you make those content moderation decisions. So I, I was interested when Reddit banned the Donald, they announced what their hate speech policy was. And they had a hate speech policy for a day and a half, and then they changed it. Uh, um, and for a day and a half, it said, you know, you're not allowed to uh, attack marginalized groups uh, based on their uh, race, color, religion, yada, 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 um, uh, pregnancy, uh, disability. And then it said, while the rule on hate protects such groups, it does not protect all groups or all forms of identity. For example, the rule does not protect groups of people who are in the majority or who promote hate attacks. Within a day and a half, they'd said they, they changed that to while the rule on hate protects such groups, it does not protect those who promote hate attacks or who try to hide their hate 
in bad faith claims of discrimination, which I would argue is really them saying the same thing because they'd say, well, if you're in the majority, uh, it's a bad faith claim of, of discrimination. This is, a, this is interesting. This is a definition of discrimination that I would guess everybody over 30 is a little surprised by, but which anybody who went to college in the last 10, 15 years has probably heard, which is it's not possible for uh, minority groups to engage in racism. Racism is systemic and it comes from uh, the majority power structure. Um, but this does mean that uh, uh, race hatred is uh, something you can promote as long as you're promoting it against a group that is defined as the majority. Kind of tricky if you're talking about uh, Hong Kong, say, uh, uh, or uh, where suddenly uh, the minority becomes the majority. Yeah, it's meant to take into account power relationships as opposed to just the abstract notion of, of race or ethnicity. And so I think it's, 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 it's going in the right direction. Whether, whether you have to change that as these, these content rules evolve over time as you try to apply them. I mean, look at, look at the way Facebook has changed over the last 10 years. They, they started out with one set of policies. They manipulated them. They moved them around. I mean, in, in, in fact, they've been accused of of changing their policies to be accommodating to Donald yeah. Trump over the last ten yeah, years. Let me let me let me suggest something different. Since since this is about harassment and taking offense, what this means is that um, if you say something that uh, uh, offends any of these specially privileged groups by race, by color, by religion, by national origin, by ethnicity, by immigration status, by gender, by gender identity, by sexual orientation, by pregnancy or disability. Anyone who says I'm disabled, I'm pregnant, uh, and I take offense gets to say that that's hate speech. But if you're in the majority, uh, you can't complain when people make exactly the same kind of generalizations or abusive uh, comments about you, which means that there's a whole host of political debate that some people can engage in and others can't. I, you know, and I, that strikes me as um, a real limitation on ordinary speech, especially let's take gender identity, where you can't use the pronoun that you consider most natural because that will be considered uh, hate speech. Uh, uh, those things are, this is basically a speech code hiding as a discrimination code. I, 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 there's much larger discussion here, obviously, but, but I think what you're missing is that they're attempting to accommodate the realities of power imbalance. You're, you're assuming everybody's just sort of equal because they're legally equal and they're not. They occupy different positions in the social hierarchy and they are marginalized and they are discriminated against. Oh, boy, if you, if you ask me for a marginalized group, I'd say whites in Appalachia are as marginalized as anybody, but they're not going to get the benefit of any of these special uh, that, that, rules. That, that, that's ignoring all the advantages that white guys have in our society as if they don't exist at all. No, it's not ignoring them, but it's not, it's saying, you know, look, I, at, at some point if you kind of say, uh, I am not going to engage in a, uh, a pity contest in which I, I roll out my disadvantage and we compare it to yours. There's plenty of very advantaged people who fall into any of those categories uh, I, and who are, have the mental toughness to engage in a debate and plenty of people who you can characterize as in the majority who uh, uh, are nonetheless 
treated with contempt by a large chunk of society. And I, I'd say uh, Appalachian whites are certainly in that category, probably because, you know, they, they probably are still flying the Confederate flag if you're not careful. You're just assuming that these group differences don't really matter. And it all comes down to individual differences. And that's just not the reality in our society. It's just not. Well, yeah, I so I, they're giving I, themselves I wide. I, I do disagree birth. on that. Um, okay, so I uh, and I'm particularly troubled that what this allows Silicon Valley to do is to say you're not allowed to say that because that's racist. Because people have been complaining that that's racist when you say I think it's really a matter of individual difference, not uh, group difference. Uh, we as a group. Uh, as group representatives find that uh, offensive and uh, therefore it should be banned as hate speech. We're not far from there. So we've resolved that one at least. Uh, uh, it, it, hey, there is a fun little fight going on uh, in the State Department uh, over a uh, uh, the Open Technology Fund and the uh, uh, the U.S. Media uh, Foundation, uh, which is an organization that builds tools, which they would say are tools to protect human rights uh, around the world. And they are they include these guys have funded Tor for years, hundreds of thousands of dollars for tour. They funded Tails, which is notorious because we covered it a couple of weeks ago uh, as the uh, uh, the tool that was used uh, to uh, induce dozens of girls uh, through sextortion to send sex videos to uh, a, uh, a guy who was keeping himself anonymous using Tails. This State Department office funded Tails. Uh, they fund Signal. So they are funding all of the things that at least the attorney general ha has hated since he got here. Um, the fight is not about that. The fight is about whether they should be funding Tor or some closed source um, tools meant to evade, in particular, the Chinese um, uh, uh, firewall. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, um, is, is, is this really what the fight is about, that uh, no. it's a question of closed versus open? It's the people who are fighting are fighting about the closed versus open source. But if you read between the lines, it's really more a small subset of the creeping corruption of the Trump administration. That it's not that the tools that they're talking about supporting are closed source that's the problem, although that's some of it. It's that it's not really very effective, but part of the Falun Gong organization. And so, so Fal the, the, the argument here is, I, my argument is, what the hell are we spending money uh, writing tools that are mostly used by child pornography artists? Uh, uh, why are we why are we giving them federal money to do that? I mean, Jacob Applebaum, for God's sake, was on the payroll at Tor when they were getting money from the federal government. So I, I think that's crazy. But what, in fact, they're fighting about is they're saying all these tools that Jacob helped us build, they're the cool open source tools. And the bad guys who have just taken over, Steve Bannon's uh, acolytes, uh, want to give the money instead to closed source products that were produced by uh, Falun Gong uh, um, uh, allies. So we should still be spending money, but we should spend it with a different group of people. Is that right? Um, except that it's not um, 
versus spending on Tor. It's versus spending on other tools that are specifically designed to evade the Great Firewall uh, or other anti-censorship. So um, this is an area that I've actually worked in. And the closed source tools in question are not the approach you really want to take. Um, and there are open source tools being developed by small teams in China that are much more effective. And so like there's a competing design from China that is free for the first 500 megabytes. And if they had federal funding, it would be free period. And that's open source. And How do we trust a tool built in China to do this? Well, it's we don't have to trust it. The Chinese are the ones who have to trust it. <laughs> but that's that's. I really think we have an interest in developing that yeah. technology here, where the families cannot be, you know, yeah. tortured. Um, it's a hard problem. The the counter censorship one is a real hard problem, especially in China, because. The problem is, is it's usually very easy to see that you're using a censorship evasion tool. And you also have the rendezvous problem of how do you get into the censorship evasion network? And this is this is what Tor has been getting getting funding from OTF on, is the uh, pluggable transports and the obfuscation techniques. But even then, it's it's a real hard problem. Isn't this a hard moral problem? You're making tools that, in, in, and they always emphasize how wonderful it'll be for human rights. And, and it will be good for human rights if it's used by people for human rights purposes. But all of the evidence suggests that 80 or 90% of the uh, dark network, for example, the uh, Tor dark network is, is used by people distributing child porn and, and engage in other criminal behavior. Um, and so the idea that you say, well, I might tolerate it because there are 10% of the users are people who want I want to protect, but pay for it? That just seems so weird. Well, it's important to understand that there's a distinction between local anonymity, which is how you evade censorship, and global anonymity, which is what Tor provides. You will not catch me defending global server anonymity ever. I want it burned to the ground. Um, you can make a case for global client anonymity, but it's harder. Local client anonymity is a very easy case to make because that's F the Chinese Great Firewall because the Great Firewall is effectively a local adversary. Once you can get out past it, you don't actually need to be anonymous anymore. Right. All right. Well, I and I I, I will uh, one last rag on uh, uh, the OTF. These are the tools. This this whole idea. Wow, we'll, we'll develop all these tools and we'll provide them to uh, the uh, oppressed peoples of the world uh, is what led Putin to believe that he was being attacked in 2011 and led him to say, the next time I get a chance, Secretary Clinton, I'm going to stick it to you. And boy, did he. So we have created these systems and we're releasing them in context where they're going to be perceived as aggression on the part of the United States. And we're going to pay for what these 
tools make possible. I'm just not sure this is this is worth the ten million dollars. Except that we'll still be doing that. Uh, it's just going to a different, less effective group. Because well, I, let I'm me not, tell I, you, don't uh, play well in Beijing to send money to Falun Gong. Uh, that's for sure. And I'm not sure that that's the world's greatest idea either. Uh, it, uh, we've gotten a little less arrogant about how our tech will change them and uh, they can't hurt us. Uh, all right. Uh, so there's also an app, Nick, that uh, downloads to your phone uh, when you hook to the network on like a Stingray, uh, or if the ISP is playing along, uh, it can be basically man in the middle onto your phone anytime you go to a, any site uh, on the internet. Is that right? Yeah, although it's actually an old idea. So the observation is if I know my target it has a vulnerability in their web browser, and can identify a web request as coming from that target, I can substitute the response with something exploited. The, the NSA was doing this for years uh, under quantum. They just did a bad job of it. Because and and the, the, the Chinese did it with their Data. firewall. They wanted yeah. to turn it into a DDoS machine. Yeah. And this is the observation that the NSO group, my oh-so-favorite bleepholes who owe me a new iPhone, they sell such a product as well. And it strongly suggests that it was being used in the wild in Morocco to target a journalist a few days after the NSO group goes, oh no, we, we double commit hard that we won't be targeting journalists anymore. Not all journalists are journalists, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And basically what the rule is, is if the adversary can see your network traffic, can identify that it's you, they can inject a response. And there's a lot of products that can do this. Um, it's fun to do on your own. I did a demo of this myself. It took me an afternoon to rig up. It's really fun to have my little pony replace every image in a web page. Ah, actually, Dave, Dave, Dave raised the, the question, can you tell who you're attacking? Dave, do you have more sympathy for NSO's uh, plight of, of trying to enforce their own standards or allegedly trying to enforce their own standards uh, uh, on customers? Well, I, I mean, I have a lot of bizarre opinions, but one of them is that historically what we have all decided is that whoever presses enter on the attack is the originator of the attack. And if that's a sovereign country, then they have sovereign immunity. And it is their targeting decisions in the end that matter. And so as a, as a vendor, no doubt you want to put limits on who is being attacked. But in the end, you don't always have all the information. So if, if a sovereign entity is telling you we have indications that an attack is imminent, this is actually a terrorist, they say they're a journalist, I think it would be hard for a vendor to push back against that. Uh, yeah, when, I, especially I suppose when they're not really at risk. Yeah, later they might discover that they've been uh, scammed. Right. Uh, and I at suppose- which point if, you withdraw if, from yeah. selling your technology to that, that customer. Uh, um, okay. Although with the NSO group, it's more, that's a feature, not a bug. That in some ways the offensive tool market has fractured into a different two, two or more sets of vendors. 
those who sell to people who are responsible and those who sell to things that get nailed by Citizen Lab. And the problem is, is if you are an actual responsible customer, you don't want to buy the same tools that uh, repressive regimes are buying because you fake share when one of them attacks uh, Ahmed Mansour and the entire thing gets blown. I think you might be confusing responsible with ultra rich as well, because there's certainly some some countries and some even jurisdictions within the United States that do not have a budget that allows them to be picky about which vendor they get their tools from. Except that and if these, the tool works, the tool works. Except that the vendors who sell towards the Middle Eastern types, the, the NSO group, NSO is not cheap. Uh, hacking team, when they were in their prime, were not cheap. So um, you actually get more cost performance by avoiding those actors. Uh, so the, the oil-rich uh, uh, governments are screwing up the market for the rest of us again. Yep. Uh, all right. I mean, we all can um, pretend yep. Saudi Arabia does not have native capabilities, but they definitely do. And so there's also an argument to be made that the fact that they're buying some of these other tools is, is advantageous to U.S. and Israeli global policy. It allows us it allows those guys to keep a little bit more track on what is being done. Uh, uh, although, if I were if I were the Saudis, I'd save my best hackers uh, uh, to hack the people who are selling me the products to hack everybody else. You know, it's a tough game out there. It is. It is tough. Uh, uh, and it's tough for the Uyghurs. Uh, the New York Times had a long article about uh, uh, how long the Chinese have been targeting uh, malware on the Uyghurs. Uh, Dave, are there any actual surprises in that story? Uh, it, uh, it looked to me as though we kind of already knew most of that. I will say I learned a lot and there were parts that surprised me. And one of the parts was the, the sheer scale and scope of it. Yeah. This is a very, very large, comprehensive effort that was all the way to like government policy. And I think if we look at like what Chinese government policy has been against the Uyghurs, it's been, you know, concentration level efforts on every but with a modern surveillance state dystopian take. And then all the way through to commercialization of, of the capability, because the team that was apparently behind so much of this uh, lookout did a great job they uh, i'm not going to say they hacked but they managed to obtain data from a protected network to allow them to decide who it was and it looks like apt 15 and i'm going to just murder the pronunciation here is actually a chinese company called xiang tianhe defense technologies which is a they sell you know anti-aircraft radars and other massive things so we're looking at like a harris style company that has expanded into cyber in a big way and so you know this company has been producing a ton of exploits surveillance apps things that masquerade as other things setting up infrastructure in other countries because they don't just monitor the the uyghurs in china they monitor them overseas as well Sure. And they've been extremely active. So if the Uyghurs want to get news on a Uyghur language application, that's probably being created by the Chinese government and wow. being used to track them. It's extremely sophisticated. 
And of course, they were also targeting this against the Tibetans. And you can no right. doubt that they're targeting this against American business people who travel through China as well. I think I think that's uh, the the, that is the lesson, isn't it? That uh, um, China develops its tools for uh, mass surveillance first domestically and then starts applying them abroad. So I think we're we're going to see this. uh, You know what? You may not have to travel to China to get uh, it surveilled in this way. Correct. And, and, you know, like very sophisticated, all all up and down the chain. So this is not a cheap effort. But it, but, a, but it was a very comprehensive, effective effort. It's something that we should look at and say, you know, there's teams out there we're not catching who are doing similar things against our interests. And this is what the equities discussion that we had earlier about why are we providing essentially security technology to Chinese groups that are also being used by other groups we don't like. And it's for this reason to counteract these strategic problems, because this is Definitely not the first or last time they're going to be tasked to do this. Okay, last topic, uh, uh, Nick. Uh, there's a Palo Alto bug that is getting a lot of attention, uh, and the expectation is it's going to be uh, uh, exploited if it isn't already being exploited by by foreign governments. Uh, how bad is it, and what should we be doing? Uh, there's actually two big bugs. You've got this Palo Alto Networks VPN bug, where basically you can log in and take over completely. And you have this F5 Networks big IP bug, which is even worse because these are basically man-in-the-middle devices with the cryptographic keys for all these supposedly secure websites. Both of these are really bad and if you are affected and didn't spend your July 4th weekend cursing at the storm dealing with patches, you are probably in trouble because I believe there's already Metasploit modules out for this stuff. Whew. Okay. Uh, quick hits. Uh, I'll just run through these. Uh, uh, the administration has embraced uh, the s- smart border wall system with a bunch of drones and uh, systems, uh, uh, artificial intelligence systems for identifying people who've crossed the border. If the wall doesn't catch them, uh, this is at least this is Andril who's doing this, uh, which is a legitimate has legitimate uh, Silicon Valley DNA. But it's at least the third time that uh, uh, governments have embraced smart border wall systems. Uh, it's harder to build than people think. Uh, and the problem is not so much building the system as delivering actionable intelligence to guys who are trying to drive 40 miles an hour on uh, uh, bucketed uh, dirt roads. Uh, the Israelis are back using their spy tools to, to, to trace uh, contacts. That, I, by my count, is at least the third time they've said, oh, yeah, let's do that. Um, uh, But they're only going to do it for three weeks, uh, and then they're going to stop because there's been a resurgence in Israel of the uh, coronavirus. And researchers at MIT have pulled a a giant training database with names for uh, uh, things in in English because it had bad words in it. Uh, And uh, if you put your your picture into the uh, the artificial intelligence engine, it might say you're a bitch. Uh, And that just, we can't have that. Uh, There were worse uh, words than that. Um, Some of them, I don't understand why MIT was apologizing. I mean, pedophile is a, you know, there are pedophiles. It's, it's, it's not clear to me that that's a slur. And, and then a slur, maybe you guys can help me. The slur that they put on here, they only listed like eight slurs that they thought were shocking. And I thought about 
one or two of them was actually shocking. But one of them is C dash 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 E. And I never did figure out what that's a slur for, but they aren't going to tell uh, me. Female reproductive organ slur followed by face. Well, okay, that's not for uh, asterisks. So maybe they decided to, to, to kind of fiddle with the asterisks. Yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't know why MIT is apologizing uh, uh, for this. Uh, it seems to me that to develop an a artificial intelligence uh, engine that doesn't know what a pedophile is is probably worse. But thanks to Nick Weaver. Thanks to Mark McCarthy. Thanks to Dave Vitale. This has been episode 323 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send comment to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if you suggest a guest that should be on the show, we will send you uh, a highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug if he actually comes on or she comes on. Uh, rate the show. Uh, that's how we get additional users vote for whichever uh, story you want to hear uh, because I will I, lately I have been putting them up on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, and letting people vote uh, to say which stories we ought to cover and then please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government. 